0: Hedonism can be defined as just, let us eat, drink, and party, for tomorrow we will die. Celebrity chef, writer, and TV personality Anthony Bourdain, who wore a tattoo on his arm that said in ancient Greek, I am certain of nothing, committed suicide on June the 8th, 2018, at the age of 61. In an interview for Men's Journal, Bourdain was asked, What are the benefits of hedonism, and what are the risks? Bourdain replied, Look, I understand that within me there's a greedy, gluttonous, lazy hippie. I understand that there's a guy inside of me who wants to lay in bed and smoke weed all day and watch cartoons and old movies. When asked, How then should a man handle regret, and what is your biggest regret? Bourdain replied, Regret is something you just have to live with. You can't drink it away and you can't run away from it. You can't trick yourself out of it. You just got to own it. I've disappointed and hurt people in my life and that's just something I'm gonna have to live with. You eat that guilt and you live with it and you own it. You own it for life. When I read that I thought, well, I guess that is one way to live life. But there is another way, and it is to put to to death the deeds of the flesh and live for Christ. And by the way, that won't drive you to suicide. Welcome back. We left off last week with David encouraging his son Solomon to be a man. Today we're going to see the first difficult things that he's going to have to do if he wants to establish himself as the king of Israel. Look at verse 5 with me. This is still King David speaking. Now you yourself also know what Joab the son of Zeruah did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner, and to Amasa the son of Jethro, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war and peace, and he put the blood of war on his belt that was on his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. So act as your wisdom dictates and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. These are David's last recorded words in the epic history of a life that began in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And it is surely one of the greatest stories that has ever been told. Are you disappointed? Do you feel like it would have been a little bit nicer if David's last words were a little more generous and not so severe? These verses have troubled many readers and many commentators. After all, they present David giving spiritual advice to Solomon on the one hand, and then offered him cold-blooded political counsel on the other. We said last week that the throne of David was established on the unconditional covenant promises of God. The prosperity of each king and his kingdom was linked inseparably to the king's faithfulness to the Lord. The throne would be maintained only by spiritual obedience. But David was also a realist. And he knew the psalmist's hold on the throne at this point was fragile and needed to be protected by some shrewd actions. Suddenly, we find ourselves in the cold, hard world of politics in a culture that definitely had its brutal side. These cold-blooded instructions make many readers uncomfortable. Was it right for David to hand out all of these death sentences? Some of his last words sounds like something out of The Godfather, in which new mafia dons secure their power by ruthlessly killing off all potential rivals. We may not be completely comfortable with what David said, but I am inclined to think that these last words of King David were completely true to God's purpose. In other words, what David was calling on Solomon to do was right, even if it was not popular with modern Bible commentators and others. Once he took the throne, Solomon had to decide what to do with the men who had plotted against the kingdom. David is going to frankly advise him to crush them. Why? We have to remember that Solomon was God's anointed king. He had been properly crowned according to the promises of God. Therefore, it was necessary for that kingdom to be established. This was necessary, in fact, for the salvation of the entire world, because God had promised that the Messiah would come from the line of David and Solomon. Furthermore, everyone in Israel owed their full allegiance to Solomon as the rightful king. This is not merely a question of politics, but a question of the obedient submission to the kingdom of God. If these men were Solomon's rivals then they were enemies of the crown that God had placed on Solomon's head. Thus, Adonijah and his henchmen were guilty of the sin of high treason, which has always been regarded rightly as a capital offense. So keep in mind here, we're not talking about men who merely disagree with Solomon's policies, but about men who wanted to take his very throne. And so the right and proper way for a king to punish such mortal enemies is not by giving them liberty, but by giving them death or at least exile. These statements are going to reflect the theological drive of this entire narrative. Namely, if the kingdom is to be made secure, then all the threats against it have to be neutralized. That is what establishing the kingdom means. We may wince at the severity of this, but there is no getting around it. This may sound harsh to us, but we need to remember the Bible is a book for adults. There is nothing sentimental about the Bible's message. Only by taking random texts out of their proper context can the Bible be made into a collection of sweet thoughts. But it is more than a flannel-board Jesus bouncing toddlers on his knees. We see here the security of the kingdom requires the elimination of all of its enemies. And so the kingdom must be preserved from those trying to undermine it. This text really has a last day dimension to it. Listen to 2 Thessalonians nine. So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes evil... And all who do sin. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. In a world with so many kinds of wickedness, cruelty, injustice, and violence, it is difficult for us to imagine a government that is wise and good enough to always do what is right. What would that be like? Well, we can be sure that such a government would not be well liked by everyone. But of course, doing what is right is not the same thing as doing what is popular. First Kings chapter 2 shares the same kingdom theology with the rest of the scripture. That is why First Kings 2 is such a searching text. The final Davidic king will follow the same principle and finally establishing his kingdom. And so our only safety is submitting to the monarchy of Jesus Christ. It may not be the most popular aspect of the gospel, but Jesus Christ is the one who will bring judgment into this whole world. As the apostle Peter explained to Cornelius, And Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he was the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So David told his son, as he took the throne, there are going to be three people you're going to have to deal with. Two enemies and one friend. First, Solomon would have to do something about Joab. David may have been old, but he had not forgotten Joab's sin in assassinating two men in cold blood. And so David's political advice is going to begin with the elimination of Joab, who was really David's effective yet generally amoral military chief. Why does he tell Solomon to do what seems to be such a vindictive act? Well, first, Joab is indeed a powerful, crafty, and dangerous opponent to Solomon's accession to the throne. Solomon cannot afford to let him disturb the peace, and so Joab represents the greatest threat to Solomon's throne. David himself had found Joab to be very difficult. No, strike that. That's an understatement. Joab was completely impossible to deal with. Three times he had defied King David and murdered someone to whom David had wanted to show kindness. Two of these are mentioned here, Abner and Amasa. At different times they had been commanders of hostile forces to David. But both had made peace with David, but they were still subsequently killed by Joab. Now, the memory of the third unauthorized slaughter was perhaps too painful for David to even put into words here, because that was David's loved but rebellious son, Absalom. David had taken all three murders very personally, as he says, while Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me. We should remember here that the me was the king. Joab had acted treacherously. So it was up to Solomon to decide exactly what to do and when to do it. But David advised for him not to let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. And by saying that, he meant, do not let him die a natural death of old age. Instead, Joab should be treated with strict and righteous vengeance. Verse 7, please. However, show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for they assisted me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. David not only remembered dangerous men like Joab and Shimei, but he also remembered helpful men like Barzillai. Here David refers to a desperate time in the history of the kingdom. David's son, Absalom, had rebelled against his father and had plunged the nation into a civil war. As a result, David and his loyal servants had to run for their lives. They fled to a wilderness where they were tired, hungry, and thirsty. But Barzillai and some other wealthy men came to the king's rescue. They brought beds, basins, and earthland vessels, Wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese for David and his men to eat. Unlike Joab, Barzillai was kingdom-minded. How do we know? Because he sided with the rightful king, even when this called for courage and required costly personal sacrifice to advance that kingdom. One commentator said, To eat at the king's table was the equivalent of having a pension. The beneficiary receiving a regular royal allowance of food and clothing with a house and land to support him and his family. I hope you know that God never forgets any kindness that is shown to any of his children. Jesus said that even anyone who gives just a cup of water to any of these will receive a reward. Or as Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, but especially to those who are the household of faith. Verse 8, please. And behold, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjamite of Bashurim, now it was he who cursed me with a painful curse on the day I went to Mahanam. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. But now do not leave him unpunished. For you are a wise man, and you will know what to do to him, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol in blood. If you remember from our study in Samuel, Shimei was the one who flung curses and threw rocks and dust at David. If you remember, I called him the Ernest T. Bass of the Old Testament. And during that time of real difficulty and personal tragedy, at that time when he was already heavy and heartbroken, Shimei arrived to just pile on even more abuse. Let me lop that guy's head off, said one of David's men. No, David said, God has allowed it. Let him curse. But when Absalom's rebellion was put down and David was returning to Jerusalem, Shimei met him at the Jordan saying, Hey, Dave, no hard feelings, I hope. You know me, I'm just a character. So Shimei came to David begging for mercy because he was fully aware that his mockery had been a capital crime against the king. And who knows? Perhaps in the euphoria of the moment, David had spared his life. But he knew in his heart that Shimei's bitterness had not vanished. And so as an influential and opportunistic adversary, he is going to pose a continuing danger to Solomon, the new king. David admits that he swore that he would not kill Shimei. Yet he encourages Solomon to find a shrewd way to bring his gray hair down to the grave in blood. Sounds like David has a vendetta against gray hair, doesn't it? And perhaps he rationalized his counsel for Solomon by telling himself that his son was not bound by the same oath that David had made to Shimei. But in context, however, this declaration was tied to the day on which David returned to the king as king of Israel. This is how 2 Samuel 19.22 actually reads. David speaking says, Shall anyone be put to death this day? Now David's recollection, recollection of his oath is consistent with this. I will not put you to death this day with the sword was mercy, but it was not an absolute pardon or unconditional. Simply put, David knew that Shimei could not be trusted and would probably cause more problems for Solomon down the road. And so he tells Solomon that at the slightest showing of rebellion, you need to put him down like old yeller. All right, Pastor Bill, all that's interesting, but... What does that have to do with me? Let me give you a quote from a Puritan named John Trapp. Concerning these verses that we looked at, he says, Oh, that we would be as quick in slaying our arch-rebels and those predominant sins that threaten our precious souls. What is he saying? The same way that Solomon was to deal with the enemies in his life, We need to be absolutely ruthless in our dealings with the flesh because our flesh is going to be absolutely ruthless in its dealings with us. So what do we do? This is Romans 8.5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. When Paul comes to verse 5 there, he is ready to point out the dividing line that separates the life of a Christian from those who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the dividing line that he identifies is the motivation that drives a person's life. In other words, what voice do we listen to when we determine what we're going to do in life? To use the language that Paul uses, You can tell where a person is headed by what they have their mind set on. And he says there are only two things, really, that anybody can consistently set their mind on. There's only only two voices that people can listen to. One is the flesh, and the other is the spirit. Paul is going to say that on planet Earth, there are really only two types of people. There are flesh people. And there are spirit people. He's going to go on to describe them as being one against the other. This morning, you're either a person that's controlled by the flesh, or you're a person that is controlled by the spirit. Simply stated, the flesh is our independent self-centered way of living, even though this way of living will always prove ineffective in the living of a human life. In fact, a good example of that ineffectiveness and sinfulness of fleshly living patterns is given by Jeremiah the prophet. In Jeremiah 2, chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord speaks about his people forsaking him and at the same time seeking their own ways to satisfy themselves. The Lord calls these ways cisterns that are broken and cannot hold water. They don't work And therefore, they cannot satisfy. Think of it this way. Once concrete sets, you're not going to be able to change its form. Likewise, some people have their minds set on the sinful nature. They don't know any other way to live. They live for the here and for the now. Have as much fun as you can. Have as much pleasure as you can. For as long as you can. And if you end up hurting some people in the process, well, that's just how life goes. Remember Anthony Bourdain from our opening. The three favorite words of the sinful fleshly nature are self, self, and oh yeah, don't forget self. Paul then says, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds instead on the things of the Spirit. In other words, those who belong to God are concerned about godly things. As Jonathan Edwards liked to say, they have holy affections, which we could describe as having deep longings after God. Those who have trusted Christ have peace with God while the unsaved, no matter how moral, are at war with God. In God's eyes, there are only two people in this world, those who do not belong to him and those who do. They have been called the saints and the ain'ts. Now, obviously, there are varying degrees in both of these categories. For example, some unsaved people might exhibit high moral behavior. And on the other hand, many of us saints do not always mind the things of God as obediently as what we should. But every human being is completely in one spiritual state of being or the other. Then in Romans 8.12, Paul will say, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Why? Well... He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Imagine with me this morning an army in the middle of a fierce war sending a message to the enemy that says, you guys really need to quit being so hostile. Why do you stop trying to take over our territory and conquer us? And instead, focus on how you can improve your attitude. And start being a little nicer and more cooperative. No general in his right mind would expect a message like that to change the mind of his sworn enemy. But that is the exact message we are sending our flesh when we just focus in our own strength of trying harder. And making resolutions and promises to quit doing this and stop doing that and start doing better. But here's what we have to understand. You can't make deals with your flesh. You have to kill it. We are told to put our flesh to death. The old King James says we are to mortify the flesh. It's from that word mortify that we get our word mortician. And what is it that a mortician does? They deal with dead bodies all day long. And so do we. It is clear here that the putting to death the deeds of the body is a characteristic of God's children if we are living in the spirit. Damian Kyle says that every morning, he gets up, he looks in the mirror, and he tells his flesh, I'm going to be fighting you all day, you creep. That might not be a bad thing. Scottish theologian David Brown wrote, If you don't kill sin, then sin is going to kill you. In the original language, the definition of mortify would be cold-blooded murder. And just like that, my friends... We are to show our flesh no mercy. Do you know why? Not to beat the point home too much, but because the old things of our old life is never going to show us any mercy. You see, feeding the flesh is like feeding a fire. The more you put into it, the hotter it gets and the more it spreads. And the very moment we begin to feed the old things of our life, those very things are going to start working towards our death and our destruction. Once again, the old saying is, the ruthlessness of sin requires ruthlessness in dealing with sin. Isn't it amazing, though, how the flesh can live on a cracker? I mean, you can have had a banqueting feast in the Spirit and you're so built up and feel so holy, but then you just slip up for a minute and you feed the flesh just a a little saltine. And it's like your flesh has broken into the cracker barrel and ate everything in sight, including the scented candles. All I'm saying is the flesh is never going to be able to satisfy us. And so like Solomon, we need to kill anything that would try to hinder the kingdom of God in our lives. Verse 10, please. Then David laid down with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David. Now the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. In Hebron he reigned for seven years, in Jerusalem he reigned for 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. David's death marks the end of the most glamorous and momentous reign in Israel's history. This great character, second only to Moses in importance in the Old Testament, is buried in the capital city that he himself built. He was a a shepherd and a soldier and an outlaw, A king, a fugitive, a sinner, a saint, and a poet. In the words of Alan Redpath, his experiences were like the writings of God on his life that made him into a man after God's own heart. But we know that he was far from perfect, and that gives me this great hope this morning. You see, rather than whitewashing the flaws of the characters in the Bible, the biblical authors always paint them in lurid and glowing colors. In fact, some of the narratives are so embarrassingly honest that I cringe to think that these poor souls have had their dirty laundry swinging in the breeze of Scripture for millennia. Aren't you glad this morning that all of our mistakes aren't written in a book for everybody to study. If they were, we would all come in here next Sunday with paper bags over our heads with little eye holes cut out. If we waste our lives by putting our kingdom ahead of God's kingdom the way that Joab did, or even worse, if we throw rocks at the king as Shimei did, cursing the very name of Jesus Christ, then we deserve his kingly wrath. God is a just and righteous king. His vengeance may not come right away, any more than it came right away for Joab and Shimei, but it will surely come at the last judgment, when everyone who has ever opposed the kingdom of God is going to be judged. Happily, there is life for every loyal servant of God who swears allegiance to the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. If we seek God's kingdom, there will be a place also for us at the royal table, just as there was for the sons of Barzillai. By trusting the king, we will receive the gracious gift of eternal life with many generous rewards heaped up on that for everything that we do down here, in the service of his kingdom. So my suggestion is this. Take a few quiet moments to soak in these closing words so eloquently expressed by Alistair McGrath and let them become the motivation toward your adventure of a lifetime. He writes, Many have found that the awesome sight of the star-studded heavens evoke a sense of wonder an awareness of transcendence that is charged with spiritual significance. Yet the distant shimmering of stars does not itself create the sense of longing, it merely just exposes what is already there. They are catalysts for our spiritual insights, revealing our emptiness and compelling us to ask whether and how this void might be filled. Might our true origins and destiny somehow lie beyond those stars. Might there not be a homeland from which we are presently exiled and to which we secretly long to return? Might not our accumulation of discontentment and disillusionment with our present existence be a pointer to another land where our true destiny lies and which is able to make its presence felt now in this this most haunting of ways? Suppose that this is not what we are meant to be, but that a better land is at hand. We really don't belong here. We have somehow lost our way. Would not this make our present existence both strange and splendid? Strange because it's not where our true destiny lies, and splendid because it points ahead to where that real hope one day will be found. The beauty of the night skies or a glorious sunset are important pointers to the origins and the ultimate fulfillment of the heart's deepest desires. But if we make the signpost for what is signposted, we will attach our longings to lesser goals, which can never finally quench our thirst for meaning. I thought that was very insightful. When evangelist Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, died in 2007, she chose to have engraved on her tombstone words that had nothing to do with her remarkable achievements. It had to do with the fact that as long as she was alive, she knew that God was going to be working on her until the day that she was finally set free. She had been driving one day along a highway through a construction site and there had been miles of detours and cautionary signs and machinery and equipment. But she finally came to the last one, and the sign read, End of construction, thank you for your patience. Did you know that is what is written on Ruth Belgram's tombstone? End of construction, thank you for your patience. Construction today, freedom tomorrow. Let us pray. Lord, I know what it's like in my flesh to be Anthony Bourdain. I know what it's like to feed my flesh, and I also know what it's like to realize that my flesh can never satisfy that longing, that eternity that you have set in the heart of all men. Please move in us today, Lord. Let your word do its cutting work. Let us not be satisfied where we are with the trinkets this world tries to offer us, But draw us to yourself as you are the only one who can truly satisfy. We ask this in the true King's name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Hedonism can be defined as just, let us eat, drink, and party, for tomorrow we will die. Celebrity chef, writer, and TV personality Anthony Bourdain, who wore a tattoo on his arm that said in ancient Greek, I am certain of nothing, committed suicide on June the 8th, 2018 at the age of 61. In an interview for Men's Journal, Bourdain was asked, what are the benefits of hedonism and what are the risks? Bourdain replied, Look, I understand that within me there's a greedy, gluttonous, lazy hippie. I understand that there's a guy inside of me who wants to lay in bed and smoke weed all day and watch cartoons and old movies. When asked, How then should a man handle regret and what is your biggest regret? Bourdain replied, Regret is something you just have to live with. You can't drink it away and you can't run away from it. You can't trick yourself out of it. You just got to own it. I've disappointed and hurt people in my life and that's just something I'm gonna have to live with. You eat that guilt and you live with it and you own it. You own it for life. When I read that I thought, well, I guess that is one way to live life. But there is another way, and it is to put to to death the deeds of the flesh and live for Christ. And by the way, that won't drive you to suicide. Welcome back. We left off last week with David encouraging his son Solomon to be a man. Today we're going to see the first difficult things that he's going to have to do if he wants to establish himself as the king of Israel. Look at verse 5 with me. This is still King David speaking. Now you yourself also know what Joab the son of Zeruah did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner and to Amasa the son of Jethor whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war and peace, and he put the blood of war on his belt that was on his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. So act as your wisdom dictates and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. These are David's last recorded words in the epic history of a life that began in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And it is surely one of the greatest stories that has ever been told. Are you disappointed? Do you feel like it would have been a little bit nicer if David's last words were a little more generous and not so severe? These verses have troubled many readers and many commentators. After all, they present David giving spiritual advice to Solomon on the one hand, and then offered him cold-blooded political counsel on the other. We said last week that the throne of David was established on the unconditional covenant promises of God. The prosperity of each king and his kingdom was linked inseparably to the king's faithfulness to the Lord. The throne would be maintained only by spiritual obedience. But David was also a realist, and he knew the Solomon's hold on the throne at this point was fragile and needed to be protected by some shrewd actions. Suddenly, we find ourselves... In the cold, hard world of politics, in a culture that definitely had its brutal side, these cold blooded instructions make many readers uncomfortable. Was it right for David to hand out all of these death sentences? Some of his last words sound like something out of The Godfather, in which new mafia dons secure their power by ruthlessly killing off all potential rivals. We may not be completely comfortable with what David said, but I am inclined to think that these last words of King David were completely true to God's purpose. In other words, what David was calling on Solomon to do was right, even if it was not popular with modern Bible commentators and others. Once he took the throne, Solomon had to decide what to do with the men who had plotted against the kingdom. David is going to frankly advise him to crush them. Why? We have to remember that Solomon was God's anointed king. He had been properly crowned according to the promises of God. Therefore, it was necessary for that kingdom to be established. This was necessary, in fact, for the salvation of the entire world because God had promised that the Messiah would come from the line of David and Solomon. Furthermore, everyone in Israel owed their full allegiance to Solomon as the rightful king. This is not merely a question of politics, but a question of the obedient submission to the kingdom of God. If these men were Solomon's rivals then they were enemies of the crown that God had placed on Solomon's head. Thus, Adonijah and his henchmen were guilty of the sin of high treason, which has always been regarded rightly as a capital offense. So keep in mind here, we're not talking about men who merely disagree with Solomon's policies, but about men who wanted to take his very throne. And so the right and proper way for a king to punish such mortal enemies is not by giving them liberty, but by giving them death or at least exile. These statements are going to reflect the theological drive of this entire narrative. Namely, if the kingdom is to be made secure, then all the threats against it have to be neutralized. That is what establishing the kingdom means. We may wince at the severity of this, but there is no getting around it. This may sound harsh to us, but we need to remember the Bible is a book for adults. There is nothing sentimental about the Bible's message. Only by taking random texts out of their proper context can the Bible be made into a collection of sweet thoughts. But it is more than a flannel board Jesus bouncing toddlers on his knees. We see here the security of the kingdom requires the elimination of all of its enemies. And so the kingdom must be preserved from those trying to undermine it. This text really has a last day dimension to it. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes evil and all who do sin. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. In a world with so many kinds of wickedness, cruelty, injustice, and violence, it is difficult for us to imagine a government that is wise and good enough to always do what is right. What would that be like? Well, we can be sure that such a government would not be well liked by everyone, but of course, doing what is right is not the same thing as doing what is popular. 1 Kings chapter 2 shares the same kingdom theology with the rest of the scripture. That is why 1 Kings 2 is such a searching text. The final Davidic king will follow the same principle and finally establishing his kingdom, and so our only safety is submitting to the monarchy of Jesus Christ. It may not be the most popular aspect of the gospel, but Jesus Christ is the one who will bring judgment into this whole world. As the apostle Peter explained to Cornelius, And Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he was the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So David told his son, as he took the throne, there are going to be three people you're going to have to deal with. Two enemies and one friend. First, Solomon would have to do something about Joab. David may have been old, but he had not forgotten Joab's sin in assassinating two men in cold blood. And so David's political advice is going to begin with the elimination of Joab, who was really David's effective yet generally amoral military chief. Why does he tell Solomon to do what seems to be such a vindictive act? Well, first, Joab is indeed a powerful, crafty, and dangerous opponent to Solomon's accession to the throne. Solomon cannot afford to let him disturb the peace, and so Joab represents the greatest threat to Solomon's throne. David himself had found Joab to be very difficult. No, strike that. That's an understatement. Joab was completely impossible to deal with. Three times he had defied King David and murdered someone to whom David had wanted to show kindness. Two of these are mentioned here, Abner and Amasa. At different times, they had been commanders of hostile forces to David. But both had made peace with David, but they were still subsequently killed by Joab. Now, the memory of the third unauthorized slaughter was perhaps too painful for David to even put into words here, because that was David's loved but rebellious son, Absalom. David had taken all three murders very personally, as he says, what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me. We should remember here that the me was the king. Joab had acted treacherously. So it was up to Solomon to decide exactly what to do and when to do it, But David advised for him not to let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. And by saying that, he meant, do not let him die a natural death of old age. Instead, Joab should be treated with strict and righteous vengeance. Verse 7, please. However, show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for they assisted me when I fled from Absalom your brother. David not only remembered dangerous men like Joab and Shimei, but he also remembered helpful men like Barzillai. Here David refers to a desperate time in the history of the kingdom. David's son Absalom had rebelled against his father and had plunged the nation into a civil war. As a result, David and his loyal servants had to run for their lives. They fled to a wilderness where they were tired, hungry and thirsty But Barzillai and some other wealthy men came to the king's rescue They brought beds basins and earthland vessels wheat barley flour parched grain Beans and lentils honey and curds and sheep and cheese for David and his men to eat Unlike Joab Barzillai was kingdom-minded. How do we know? because he sided with the rightful king, even when this called for courage and required costly personal sacrifice to advance that kingdom. One commentator said, to eat at the king's table was the equivalent of having a pension, the beneficiary receiving a regular royal allowance of food and clothing with a house and land to support him and his family. I hope you know that God never forgets any kindness that is shown to any of his children. Jesus said that even anyone who just gives just a cup of water to any of these will receive a reward. Or as Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who are the household of faith. Verse 8, please. And behold, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjamite of Bashurim. Now it was he who cursed me with a painful curse on the day I went to Mahanam. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. But now do not leave him unpunished. For you are a wise man, you will know what to do to him, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol in blood. If you remember from our study in Samuel, Shimei was the one who flung curses and threw rocks and dust at David. If you remember, I called him the Ernest T. Bass of the Old Testament. And during that time of real difficulty and personal tragedy, at that time when he was already heavy and heartbroken, Shimei arrived to just pile on even more abuse. Let me lop that guy's head off, said one of David's men. No, David said, God has allowed it. Let him curse. But... When Absalom's rebellion was put down and David was returning to Jerusalem, Shimei met him at the Jordan saying, Hey Dave, no hard feelings I hope. You know me, I'm just a character. So Shimei came to David begging for mercy because he was fully aware that his mockery had been a capital crime against the king. And who knows, perhaps in the euphoria of the moment, David had spared his life. But he knew in his heart that Shimei's bitterness had not vanished. And so as an influential and opportunistic adversary, he is going to pose a continuing danger to Solomon, the new king. David admits that he swore that he would not kill Shimei. Yet he encourages Solomon to find a shrewd way to bring his gray hair down to the grave in blood. Sounds like David has a vendetta against gray hair, doesn't it? And perhaps he rationalized his counsel for Solomon by telling himself that his son was not bound by the same oath that David had made to Shimei. But in context, however, this declaration was tied to the day on which David returned to the king as king of Israel. This is how 2 Samuel 19.22 actually reads. David speaking says, Shall anyone be put to death this day? Now David's recollection, recollection of his oath is consistent with this. I will not put you to death this day with the sword was mercy. But it was not an absolute pardon or unconditional. Simply put, David knew that Shimei could not be trusted and would probably cause more problems for Solomon down the road. And so he tells Solomon that at the slightest showing of rebellion, you need to put him down like old yeller. All right, Pastor Bill, all that's interesting, but what does that have to do with me? Let me give you a quote from a Puritan named John Trapp. Concerning these verses that we looked at, he says, Oh, that we would be as quick in slaying our arch-rebels and those predominant sins that threaten our precious souls. What is he saying? The same way that Solomon was to deal with the enemies in his life, we need to be absolutely ruthless in our dealings with the flesh because our flesh... Is going to be absolutely ruthless in its dealings with us. So what do we do? This is Romans 8:5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. When Paul comes to verse 5 there, he is ready to point out the dividing line that separates the life of a Christian from those who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the dividing line that he identifies is the motivation that drives a person's life. In other words, what voice do we listen to when we determine what we're going to do in life? To use the language that Paul uses, you can tell where a person is headed by what they have their mind set on. And he says there are only two things, really, that anybody can consistently set their mind on. There's only only two voices that people can listen to. One is the flesh, and the other is the spirit. Paul is going to say that on planet Earth, there are really only two types of people. There are flesh people, and there are spirit people. He's going to go on to describe them as being one against the other. This morning you're either a person that's controlled by the flesh or you're a person that is controlled by the Spirit. Simply stated, the flesh is our independent self centered way of living, even though this way of living will always prove ineffective in the living of a human life. In fact, a good example of that ineffectiveness and sinfulness of fleshly living patterns is given by Jeremiah the prophet. In Jeremiah 2, chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord speaks about His people forsaking Him and at the same time seeking their own ways to satisfy themselves. The Lord calls these ways cisterns that are broken and cannot hold water. They don't work, and therefore they cannot satisfy Think of it this way. Once concrete sets, you're not going to be able to change its form. Likewise, some people have their minds set on the sinful nature. They don't know any other way to live. They live for the here and for the now. Have as much fun as you can. Have as much pleasure as you can. For as long as you can. And if you end up hurting some people in the process, well... That's just how life goes. Remember Anthony Bourdain from our opening. The three favorite words of the sinful fleshly nature are self, self, and oh yeah, don't forget self. Paul then says, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds instead on the things of the Spirit. In other words, those who belong to God are concerned about godly things. As Jonathan Edwards liked to say, they have holy affections, which we could describe as having deep longings after God. Those who have trusted Christ have peace with God, while the unsaved, no matter how moral, are at war with God. In God's eyes, there are only two people in this world, those who do not belong to him and those who do. They have been called the saints and the ain'ts. Now, obviously, there are varying degrees in both of these categories. For example, some unsaved people might exhibit high moral behavior, and on the other hand, Many of us saints do not always mind the things of God as obediently as what we should. But every human being is completely in one spiritual state of being or the other. Then in Romans 8.12, Paul will say, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Why? Well, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Imagine with me this morning an army in the middle of a fierce war sending a message to the enemy that says, you guys really need to quit being so hostile. Why do you stop trying to take over our territory and conquer us? and instead focus on how you can improve your attitude and start being a little nicer and more cooperative. No general in his right mind would expect a message like that to change the mind of his sworn enemy. But that is the exact message we are sending our flesh when we just focus in our own strength of trying harder. And making resolutions and promises to quit doing this and stop doing that and start doing better. But here's what we have to understand. You can't make deals with your flesh. You have to kill it. We are told to put our flesh to death. The old King James says we are to mortify the flesh. It's from that word mortify that we get our word mortician. And what is it that a mortician does? They deal with dead bodies all day long. And so do we. It is clear here that the putting to death the deeds of the body is a characteristic of God's children if we are living in the Spirit. Damien Kyle says that every morning he gets up, he looks in the mirror, and he tells his flesh, I'm going to be fighting you all day, you creep. That might not be a bad thing. Scottish theologian David Brown wrote, If you don't kill sin, then sin is going to kill you. In the original language, the definition of mortify would be cold blooded murder. And just like that, my friends. We are to show our flesh no mercy. Do you know why? Not to beat the point home too much, but because the old things of our old life is never going to show us any mercy. You see, feeding the flesh is like feeding a fire. The more you put into it, the hotter it gets and the more it spreads. And the very moment we begin to feed the old things of our life, those very things are going to start working towards our death and our destruction. Once again, the old saying is, the ruthlessness of sin requires ruthlessness in dealing with sin. Isn't it amazing, though, how the flesh can live on a cracker? I mean, you can have had a banqueting feast in the Spirit, and you're so built up and feel so holy, but then you just slip up for a minute and you feed the flesh just a, a little saltine. And it's like your flesh has broken into the cracker barrel and ate everything in sight, including the scented candles. All I'm saying is the flesh is never going to be able to satisfy us. And so like Solomon, we need to kill anything that would try to hinder the kingdom of God in our lives. Verse 10, please. Then David laid down with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David. Now the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. In Hebron he reigned for seven years, in Jerusalem he reigned for 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. David's death marks the end of the most glamorous and momentous reign in Israel's history. This great character, second only to Moses in importance in the Old Testament, is buried in the capital city that he himself built. He was a a shepherd and a soldier and an outlaw, a king. A fugitive, a sinner, a saint, and a poet. In the words of Alan Redpath, his experiences were like the writings of God on his life that made him into a man after God's own heart. But we know that he was far from perfect and that gives me this great hope this morning. You see, rather than whitewashing the flaws of the characters in the Bible, the biblical authors always paint them in lurid and glowing colors. In fact, some of the narratives are so embarrassingly honest that I cringe to think that these poor souls have had their dirty laundry swinging in the breeze of Scripture for millennia. Aren't you glad this morning that all of our mistakes aren't written in a book for everybody to study? If they were, we would all come in here next Sunday with paper bags over our heads, with little eye holes cut out. If we waste our lives by putting our kingdom ahead of God's kingdom, the way that Joab did, or even worse, if we throw rocks at the king, as Shimei did, cursing the very name of Jesus Christ, then we deserve his kingly wrath. God is a just and righteous king. His vengeance may not come right away, any more than it came right away for Joab and Shimei, but it will surely come at the last judgment, when everyone who has ever opposed the kingdom of God is going to be judged. Happily, there is life for every loyal servant of God who swears allegiance to the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. If we seek God's kingdom, there will be a place also for us at the royal table, just as there was for the sons of Barzillai. By trusting the king, we will receive the gracious gift of eternal life with many generous rewards heaped up on that for everything that we do down here in the service of his kingdom. So my suggestion is this. Take a few quiet moments to soak in these closing words so eloquently expressed by Alistair McGrath and let them become the motivation toward your adventure of a lifetime. He writes, Many have found that the awesome sight of the star-studded heavens evoke a sense of wonder, an awareness of transcendence that is charged with spiritual significance. Yet the distant shimmering of stars does not itself create the sense of longing. It merely just exposes what is already there. They are catalysts for our spiritual insights, revealing our emptiness and compelling us to ask whether and how this void might be filled. Might our true origins and destiny somehow lie beyond those stars? Might there not be a homeland from which we are presently exiled, and to which we secretly long to return. Might not our accumulation of discontentment and disillusionment with our present existence be a pointer to another land, where our true destiny lies, and which is able to make its presence felt now in this this most haunting of ways? Suppose that this is not what we are meant to be. But that a better land is at hand we really don't belong here we have somehow lost our way would not this make our present existence most strange and splendid strange because it's not where our true destiny lies and splendid because it points ahead to where that real hope one day will be found the beauty of the night nice skies or a glorious sunset are important pointers to the origins and the ultimate fulfillment of the heart's deepest desires. But if we make the signpost for what is signposted, we will attach our longings to lesser goals, which can never finally quench our thirst for meaning. I thought that was very insightful. When evangelist Billy Graham's wife Ruth died in 2007, she chose to have engraved on her tombstone words that had nothing to do with her remarkable achievements. It had to do with the fact that as long as she was alive, she knew that God was going to be working on her until the day that she was finally set free. She'd been driving one day along a highway through a construction site and there had been miles of detours and cautionary signs and machinery and equipment. But she finally came to the last one, and the sign read, End of construction, thank you for your patience. Did you know that is what is written on Ruth Belgram's tombstone? End of construction, thank you for your patience. Construction today, freedom tomorrow. Let us pray. Lord, I know what it's like in my flesh to be Anthony Bourdain. I know what it's like to feed my flesh, and I also know what it's like to realize that my flesh can never satisfy that longing, that eternity that you have set in the heart of all men. Please move in us today, Lord. Let your word do its cutting work. Let us not be satisfied where we are with the trinkets this world tries to offer us. But draw us to yourself as you are the only one who can truly satisfy. We ask this in the true King's name, the name of Jesus. Amen.